Hi, I'm Joe Donnelly. I'm the author of L.A. Man, Profiles from a Big City in a Small World. And I'm honored to be speaking with... Ta-da! Chaz Smith, and I am author of Cocaine Plus Surfing. Chaz, I was just driving through through uh, Visalia. Not through it, past it. Oof, I'm sorry. How did you meet someone from Visalia? Let's start there. I met, I met somebody from Visalia at college, so it was... The yeah, College of Visalia? Where... It, was, it was not, thankfully, the College of Visalia. It was Biola University down in La Mirada, California. And I met her there. So, it just, yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea what Visalia even was before meeting her. So I teach at Whittier College. A fantastic, so you know. You, you know Biola University straight down the street. Yeah, I got to ask what's a nice boy like you. What's a right nice Jewish boy like you? I won't. I won't use. Uh, I won't go to Mick Fanning territory. <laughs> doing at Biola University. You know, it's funny. I really, uh, yeah. My mom went to Biola, and that was the. I think I. I probably got rejected from a, any other school. I, I remember only trying to apply to Harvey Mudd just because I liked the name, <laughs> um, and I definitely got rejected from Harvey Mudd, but I think I got rejected everywhere else except for Biola. But my mom went there. That's the only place I ever really wanted to go for some reason. I get the feeling you're one of those not nice boys. You know, I'm I'm not nice now. Maybe going to Biola University made me not nice overall. But uh, yeah, yeah, Biola. But but uh, Whittier College. Uh, I I was always real jealous of you at Whittier College because you guys have Richard Milhouse Nixon. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a legacy that we, I do our best not to live up to, I guess. <laughs> but it's a legacy nonetheless. It is a legacy. It's a beautiful, beautiful legacy. Yeah. Do you, do you live in Whittier? Uh, no, I, I live in LA. Okay. Yeah. Good on you. But, you know, it's complicated man, that Richard Nixon. He is. He is a complicated man, to, he I seems, think to say the least, maybe. He seems quaint now, doesn't he? He seems so like when I read back and, and I think everybody probably feels this way. But when I read like the the Richard Nixon stuff of old, it just uh, it's just it's so satisfying and and pleasant. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he would be perhaps even considered a little bit too progressive uh, by today's standards. Completely, completely. Yeah, no, we're I'm, I'm dreaming of the tan rested and ready Nixon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for, you know, uh, I don't know if he ever got in the water, but he was he was within striking distance of uh, trestles, wasn't he? He sure was at Cotton's. Yeah, he was he is right there, right in front of us, basically. Uh, there's good stories about um, him. I don't know if he was in charge of it, but I'm, let's just say he was of the uh, Secret Service trying to arrest surfers on the beach uh, who were daring to surf out in front of the Western White House. Yeah, there was there were you can never tell they could have been commie spies. I mean, they probably were. Let's be honest. <laughs> so, Chaz, let me let's just continue with the the anomaly that is you for a second. All right. Okay, hit me. So, okay, where you 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 were born in San Jose, if I recall from my five minutes of research before we got on the phone. Your five minutes of re research are correct. Born in San Jose, but but the folks left before I had a memory. What were they doing moving to uh, Coos Bay, Oregon? What happened? It was a real disaster, a real disaster in the stars. My uh, mom's dad got a job as a president of a bank up there, and I have no idea why they were compelled to move near her folks, but somehow they were compelled, and so they moved up to Coos Bay, and then my mom's folks left soon after, and so we were stuck for 18 years in Coos Bay. Your mom's folks left? They left. They, he got another job down in Moreno Valley down here as a president of a bank, and so they were, see you later. Leaving oh, was us your mom in a cold single mom? She wasn't at all. That's why I'm confused about why they decided that it was real important to be next to her folks. I think they had, they were in San Jose and it was just starting to kind of boom. And I think they thought, uh, oh, that, you know, Oregon pastoral deal would be nice. And little did they know it w would not have been nice. So obviously this, you run contrary to all types of stereotypes one might make about a smart, nice, young Jewish boy, right? It's true. I'm, I'm, yeah, I wish I was all of those things. Have you, have, have, is this something you've been aware of, uh, uh, conscious of, or, or, you know, is it uh, something that um, has been willful or is it just the way things have gone? You know, I think, I think, 
I'm going to blame it all. Contrarian by nature, uh, obviously a little bit, right? I mean, I think I am a little bit by nature, but I, I'm going to blame it all on Kuzbe of of being raised in a in a play. I mean, it was basically a vacuum, right? There was no. I had no tie to Southern California aside from cousins and grandma and whatnot. And I mean, I was just, I was, I think I was being raised in a place where I didn't know what I was supposed to think. So right. then I thought, I thought whatever I thought and thought it was the good thing to think. And lo and behold, come to find out, no, it was all bad. It was all <laughs> rotten, rotten egg stuff. Well, not all of it, right? I mean, let's just, well, 90%. I mean, the white supremacy part was bad, but. That, that part was, that part wasn't the best. The rest was okay. Yeah, I guess the rest was okay. Besides that, I know it's funny. This get 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 five miles outside of Portland, and man, you're in you know you're in a different place, aren't you? I mean, um, completely. That's the funny thing. When growing up there, and people would talk about how much they liked Oregon, I would always be scratching my head, thinking, where where are you going in Oregon? Like, I mean, I basically grew up in the Confederate South, and so yeah, I don't I don't know what you guys are talking about. But then, yeah, I because I never went to Portland as a kid, but. But going there now, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I get it. I get why people like Oregon. Portland's fantastic. Yeah, Portland's fantastic. It's beautiful up there. But, you know, five miles outside of Portland and you have the Bundy clan holding everyone hostage. Completely, which was they were basically holding me me hostage, too. Yeah. Did you feel like is there some sort of is in any way did you sort of find yourself later in life almost like. I'm going to draw a parallel that may be totally off base, but have you ever read Paul Beatty's White Boy Shuffle? No, but now I'm going to. That's a, that's a fantastic title. He's great. He just, you know, this, he just wrote this, his, uh, well, The Sellout was his, I think, won the national book, Okay. You know, I've heard of The Sellout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he wrote this incredibly funny, satirical, sad, and poignant novel um, called White Boy Shuffle. It's about a, um, it's really, it's amazing. It's about a, a young black boy who grows up in Santa Monica with like just among skaters and surfer dudes, you know, and, uh, you know, and he's sort of, you know, the author paints this sort of uh, beach pastoral of, you know, long lingering sunsets, hijinks, white boy hijinks, you know, uh, you know, getting, you know, rousted by the cops for like uh, littering, you know, nothing. And then his, you know, his mom basically is like, uh, uh-uh, you guys are becoming too white and moves them right to the, you know, moves them to the hood, um, you know, bas- basically South L.A. Um, because she's uh, nervous about how, uh, you know, this sort of surfer uh, patois that he, you know, he's growing up around and, um, you, you know, and also the intendant uh, concerns probably implicit about where his privilege will eventually run out. Um, uh, if he stays in that environment and he moves to the, uh, to the, to the hood and becomes kind of a ghetto superstar and it's sort of a story of finding identity. I wonder if there's, is there, is it in any way analogous to your experience of getting out of Portland and sort of, uh, uh, finding, finding yourself a little bit more? I mean, that's, I guess that's a, with me, at least it was a thing of, of, I always felt like I belonged to LA some, for some reason, even though. You know, I had never lived here as a kid, but I, I just it just felt like home to me. It felt like where I belonged. And in this surf culture, which I dreamed up in my head in Coos Bay, what this thing was, because I didn't know, but I would, you know, piece it together from the magazines my cousins would send or whatever. Like, OK, this I am a surfer from California is who I am, even though I was I was a crappy kid in Coos Bay, Oregon. Um, but I would just try to I would try to remake what I what I felt it was. And so coming down here then, uh, and becoming part of it, I think my, my idea of what I was doing, uh, continues today to run up against what the thing really is. Right. Like where I, I had no idea. I just invented this whole thing in my head that, and so I'm always confused or fairly perpetually confused about, wait, why is the surf industry act this way? I thought it was, I thought it was the way I built it in my brain in Coos Bay. And why did you want to build that? What, what, what was the yearning you felt? I mean, I just think it was oddly, which I want to talk to you about, too, about about be, being an L.A. man, about this. Just the idea of L.A., I think, is just so captivating. Um, and, you know, when I'm sitting inside for day 18 of rain uh, with 30 more days of rain stretching out ahead, like yeah. and just thinking there was there's just there was something about the energy of L.A. and the sun. And we would come down once a year to see my grandma and. Uh, see the cousins or you know my two of the cousins who lived lived down here 
Um, and, and every time I would go home, just thinking, that's it. You know, that's the only place on earth that matters. The only place on earth that matters is, is Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, there's the, you know, there's the, the, the oppressiveness of the low sky in, you yeah. know, and the rain and the grayness and all that kind of stuff. But, um, there's also, I grew, I kind of grew up, you know, not in my formative years in Pittsburgh. And there was another sort of oppressiveness that I'm wondering if you came up against as well, which was, um, you know, this, this idea that to yearn to be, uh, anything different other than, you know, uh, you know, in Pittsburgh it was other than like a sort of jock or a tough guy yeah, uh, was, was, you know, somehow, uh, you know, it was fey. It was, it was frowned upon. Um, totally. And like, I mean, that's the, it was up in Coos Bay. It was either your, you know, a redneck more or less like a logger fisher or, that was it. Like nobody, nobody dreamed anything outside of Coos Bay. Yeah. And LA, I guess is the city of dreams as, as cliche as it is to come down and think, okay, there's this, there's this place that I can come to. And it's funny, I guess. I mean, I would love to hear your, uh, your, what brought you to LA. But for me, I guess I just came like any, you know, ingenue actress came down here of like, I wasn't, I didn't ever think about being an actor or wanting to do that, but I just, I wanted to be able to dream. Yeah, you wanted you were gonna you're gonna you're gonna make it here, right? Yeah, yeah. however however that looked as a as a surf journalist, I was gonna, it's going to achieve the dream of all surf journalists. Well, did you had you decided you were gonna be a surf journalist at this point? When did you? No, move? no, not at all. Like at the, I mean, going to Biola, I had no idea what I wanted to be initially. Like, uh, yeah, I, can't, I mean, I a Bible translator was in there for a minute. Um, <laughs> But, uh, and it turns out that's exactly what you became. <laughs> it is exactly. It is it's all on the nose. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, but no, I mean, and I didn't even think, uh, you know, the first thing I ever wrote, uh, I remember reading it in a surf magazine. I took a trip to Yemen um, when I was at, at college, actually, or it was just right after college with some buddies. And uh, we were the first people to ever surf in Yemen, you know, or surf the surf mainland Yemen. And so did the whole thing there for four months. Uh, wrote about it for an Australian surf magazine, thought, this is amazing. I am now a famous surf writer. Uh, right. Got the story back, and it was so horrible reading my own words, like reading it back that I didn't write again for two years and then accidentally slipped into it again. That's amazing. It was awful. It was an awful, awful, awful piece. <laughs> yeah, there's some stuff that uh, I can't help but look back upon and uh, – um, you know, uh, with a little bit of, uh, uh, concern, I guess so, <laughs> that someone might find it and read it. Did, did you want to be, did you want to be a novelist, uh, growing up? No. And, and I'm not, <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, I don't know what I wanted to be growing up. Uh, I, I never really knew. I tried on a lot of different poses. Um, you know, I, and I'm not, I'm still not sure I know what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I kind of fell into journalism because, uh, I think I shouldn't say I fell in, I think maybe it pulled, you know, sucked me in because it's a way to be a bit of, a both, a a, a voyeur and, uh, a dilettante. And, uh, I think I, you know, have a little bit of both of those in me. Um, you know, I like to observe and, 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 you know, look at how, how people are living and, what they're doing and, and, you know, how they, um, organize themselves and, 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 you know, um, make it through life and, you know, what struggles they have just sort of observe, uh, the way, uh, not just people, but also the world and nature and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, you know, that in one way drew me to journalism, uh, just being curious, um, and something of, uh, I guess, a, a amateur historian and anthropologist in a way, but, also, I mean, I, I like to try things on, you know, I like to, and journalism allows you to do that. I mean, I've been, a, I've been a, uh, you know, uh, a celebrity pro, you know, I've done celebrity journalism. I've done environmental journalism. I've done investigative journalism. I've done, you know, uh, hard news journalism. And, you know, I've also done, um, you know, uh, arts and culture journalism and, you know, really snowboarding. I did snowboarding culture journalism for a number of years. I was like the snowboarder journalist guy. You that know? is totally amazing. Did you, when, what were the years you were covering snowboarding? 
you know, like 95 to 98 or 9. I can't remember. I, I, start, I came out to L.A. Um, because I, I got hired by Raygun uh, Publishing, which oh, you might amazing. be. Of do course. you remember Raygun? You're not of course. Student? Yeah. I got hired by Raygun Publishing to start this uh, snowboarding magazine called Stick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know Stick? You remember? Yes. I mean, so, yeah, like my, my wife uh, is Cersei Wallace. Who oh no! Shit, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your, your your current or your former? My current, yeah. No, oh, my yeah, life. Yeah, yep. yeah. So my, my I didn't know her. My well, life. I remembered her well, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. And her ex-husband is Andy Hetzel, who he was all in that scene, and he lived yeah. a few houses down. So yeah, I I get to relive the snowboard glory years every day. Weirdly, I was just lamenting that I haven't gone snowboarding since about I don't know 2001 or something. And, uh, it's and a I fun started, thing. Yeah, and I started watching some old snowboarding videos featuring like all these dudes who were in uh, Vail, Colorado when I was there, like um, Stevie Alters and yep. J2, Jason Rasmus and yep. <laughs> Jay Nelson and guys like that. And, um, you know, uh, just remember, God and Adam Murray, they were a lot better than I thought they were, at least. Yeah, you know. <laughs> they, those guys ripped. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I look back at those old videos too and think it's more. Like, I understand that kind of stuff. I mean, today it's just all so many spins and all that. Where, where back yeah. then, people were actually shredding, which is fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. No, they're really good at, you know, um, big air and, and doing the park stuff. But these guys fucking did everything, man. They, and it's it's amazing how they just used the environment, the, the actual natural environment, like a park. You know, obviously sure. they translated their... Uh, you know, skateboarding skills, you know, to snowboarding, but they didn't, they didn't feel the need to alter things too much. They just played with what was there. And it took a lot of actually, you know, not just skill on the board, but also sort of, you know, skill on the mountain. Completely. Uh, to be able to, to be able to read that. I mean, that's what I, and I think it's, it's fairly akin to surfing what those guys are doing, where it seems like, of course, the, the field is, is static for the mountain, but it's still like, being able to make it this canvas where you're playing on it is all surfing is. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate the way you're putting that because there was a lot more, those guys weren't like, they weren't the jock snowboarders, but I really appreciate the kind of artistic flair they brought to it. They were really creative. Well, and that's a funny that you, I mean, cause I think for, I don't even know if kids these days have that you fucking jock kind of mentality, but I did totally growing up. And I, I mean, it feels from what you've said from Pittsburgh that, you must have had a little bit of that too, where the jocks were the enemy, and you yeah. could you could retreat into this action sport thing that was happening. And you know, I mean, at least in Cuspay, I think I was the only kid, you know, me and one buddy surfed uh, that were that I ever saw around. I didn't know anybody else who surfed, and you know, maybe you see a couple kids kicking a skateboard down the street, but that was it. Nobody did this stuff, so you could you could do it and and make it your own in a way that yeah, I don't know today. I don't know if kids. Uh, was to fucking jocks like it was yeah. back for us but it was sure fun to have those those enemies yeah like growing up if you you know if, if you skateboarded you were just an outright you know f word yeah and, and even if you played basketball you were sort of suspect yeah <laughs> just like football or baseball you know yeah uh, and i you know i i didn't we didn't really i didn't really have exposure to action sports as a kid i didn't i, I never did them but i i played soccer which was like the most communist thing you could oh, do. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, like you like those yeah. were that's that was the that was the sport that the freaks played. We had long hair and you know like you know we were you, you know we smoked pot. And, you know, <laughs> the girls all liked us. You know, it's confused um, the hell out of the football players. <laughs> that is totally awesome. Did you, okay, so your career as a real journalist. When you look back on your snowboard journalism, do you think oh? I was like goofy and cute, or do you think oh it's all it's all in the pantheon? Um, a little of both. Uh, you know, there's a couple of things that I'm really proud of with Stick. One is that we were about five to ten years ahead of the, our time, and basically, you know, a lot. Of, there was a moment when everyone copied us. A few years later, we were the first ones to put do a black and white cover. Yeah, uh, we we're the first ones to actually just put. Um, uh, uh, like a profile, like a Rolling Stone or type of profile on the cover, not an action shot. We did uh, Sean Palmer just sort of shot like he was a rock star on the cover. 
uh, under the cover. Yeah, and we were, you know, we we're kind of the first to not take it so, uh, uh, you know, seriously. And then Blunt, of course, went off the rails doing that shit. <laughs> it was really funny. But, um, you know, we were the first kind of art damaged uh, snowboarding publication, you know. Um, and uh, uh, we would do black and white features. It was moody. You know, we'd have like guys like Arlie Karstens, who was, a, you know, would, you know, write for us. And, and also, you know, gave the first i you know this is my i think the greatest lasting legacy of um stick was that it i i sort of found kevin zacker the great photographer and um he became the photo editor uh, and he's gone on to have this great career but he brought such a, a beautiful eye to the artistic side he and alex bacon who was my um associate editor they brought such a beautiful artistic eye to presenting uh, snowboarding, which I'm, you know, I'm lastingly proud of. And, you know, we also had shits and grins and did, uh, you know, other kinds of stuff. But, you know, we attempted in places a more literary and artistic approach to, uh, to, to, you know, covering snowboarding, which the window for it, it wasn't quite the right window for it. It was turning sort of more like jackass meets jock. Sure. And, uh, you know, it came back around, it came around our way a few years later um for for a while but uh you know uh it's all yeah it's all part of the pantheon i don't know where any of the co copies of that magazine are anymore so i don't I, I can't really tell you too much about it i remember the writing was awful yeah <laughs> and i apologize to any contributors listening to this but i would basically you know have to rewrite almost everything and a lot of it was just me entertaining myself you know um you know rewriting rewriting stuff uh but you know it, it was fun <laughs> it wasn't like a career aspiration i was always sort of faking it because i wasn't really a snowboarder you know i i snowboarded for a while and i was you know i got to it and surfing late in life and you know i'm good enough uh i'm good enough to have fun surfing for the most part if it gets over head high i'd probably stay out of the water um and you know i was a decent snowboarder i could handle the mountain but i was never like a you know, never doing, Just you know, jumps it. and flips and yeah. stuff. Like, you know, I mean, I was doing jumps, but not with any style. Sure. Uh, but I could ride the mountain, you know, that was about it. See, it's funny for, I mean, for me coming from the damned surf journalism world, always looking uh, over, over the fence at real journalists and just thinking, ah, oh, look at you guys, all, all good at what you do and poor us. Well, you know, from what from what I've read, you're, you know, you're great and you have what it takes. You've got balls for one, you know, you're, you're kind of, <laughs> you know, tell me about being a war correspondent. I mean, that was the yeah, that the those early trips to Yemen kind of at at uh, college, I really sort of fell in love with with the Middle East. Uh, I studied um, in Egypt for six months and and learned enough Arabic to think I was fluent. Right. Uh, and so did a bunch of trips. Um, you know, right out, like for the, probably the 10 years after college, I was, I was over there and, you know, Somalia or Lebanon or wherever, you know, just a couple times a year. Uh, and there was, there was just something about the region, maybe that the same way that I was drawn to LA as a kid, yeah. uh, I was drawn to the Middle East as a, as a, I don't know, younger man of, it just seemed like any anything was possible. Like it was this dangerous world. I loved the danger. I loved that nobody was there. I loved that nobody was doing it. And I felt I can go here and, you know, we can just go bananas. Like we can run around and do what we want. And yeah, it was insanely, not only insanely fun, but thinking about it now, about those trips. I mean, you know, we in, in Yemen, especially, we did a bunch of trips through Yemen uh, and now with the wars and stuff, it's heartbreaking. But um, you know, we were the we were the first white people to, that had ever been to some of those towns, deep, deep, deep up in the hills. So looking back at that, thing, wow, that we we actually really were doing stuff over there. Uh, yeah. We're writing about it poorly, but at least we we're living fun. Have you thought about doing a memoir? You know, memoir around uh, that aspect of your life or that time. I I've thought I just I just don't know that I've I've done enough yet where it, it I mean I, you know I I loved it so much but but yeah I just don't know if other people are interested in it. Hmm. And, and I think I mean in the Middle East and Yemen. Yeah, I mean I guess I just I always think that uh, when I when I kind of rehash the stuff 
people are always seem interested, but I see their eyes glazing over pretty quickly in terms of, you know, I wonder for people, the Middle East is just this, this troubled place that always is troubled and all that. And, you know, they're more or less right. And I just wonder if it's just so hard to cut through the noise on, uh, on Middle East stuff. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I mean, but you know, similarly, uh, why has, let's get right. Why hasn't anyone ever been able to make a good surfing movie? I mean, my, this is my, should, uh, do that? should that be our thing? The, my firm belief is that, uh, unlike other things, I think people in Hollywood, I, I've done enough Hollywood, we, Hollywood meetings at this point in my life where to, to hang out with the producer or the director or the writer and they all think they surf. Right. And so because they do surf, sometimes they think they know the culture and yeah. so that's why I think it just gets wrecked every time because the guy's like, oh, no, I, I surf. I know what I know what to do here. And uh, to me, surfing and knowing the surf industry and knowing what surfing is like deeply uh, to its root are two entirely different things, um, which I think that. But again, in, in my experience with Hollywood, you know, you'll, you'll always ever guaranteed every meeting I've ever done ever. Uh, some guy will come up and say, oh, yeah, you know, I surf. Like, yeah. you fucking don't. You may, you may surf sometimes, yes, but you, you, uh, you know, and you may count yourself a surfer, which is totally fine, but you don't know. I mean, surfing, the world of surfing is as, you know, bizarre and, and strange and twisted and whatever as, you know, any world, like as, as the, I don't know, like mafia in Mexico. And I, I don't yeah. think that any, you know, just because a producer's done a bit of coke, I don't think they would <laughs> think that they knew. Like, how, oh, you know, I mean, they, they might, they might, and that might just be a Hollywood problem in general, but, but yeah. that's why I think, I think it's because the people in Hollywood think that they know surfing and none of yeah. them know surfing. No. Did, did, uh, did LA man get options? No, it's uh, LA man is a collection of profiles. So, okay. yeah, it would be hard to option it, but I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, one, one piece in there that I, it boggles my mind that hasn't been optioned, which is uh, called The Pirate of Penance. And it's about Eddie Padilla, who was one of the original members of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Oh, how great um, is the Brotherhood of Eternal Love story? They're great, but his story is actually the story. There's, there's, no, other, there's no other story that can really touch it because it, of its, but its epic sweep and that it's crystallized in one person. Uh, whereas, you know, trying to trying to forge a story out of the, the brotherhood of eternal love is a topic. It's not a story, you know. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, Eddie, Eddie is a story and his life is is just it's as grandiose as, as he is himself talking about it, actually. Um, and uh, epic in, in, in its sweep and its ability to um you know, not just that time, but all the way to kind of the present, uh, 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 you know, even recovery culture. Uh, uh, um, yeah, that's perfect. That's, I mean, that's perfection right there. Those kinds of stories are the things when I hear them, I just like drool or get really jealous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really amazing. You you know, I remember, you know, it's uh, anyway, you, you, maybe you'll read it some, you can read it and you know, you'll, uh, I don't feel like talking about it endlessly here, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it takes in the whole sweep of the 60s, you know, and the, no, and the idealism me. turned to cynicism, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, acid and pot turning to coke and, and heroin and, um, you know, the kind of uh, keystone cops and, and you know, uh, weekend uh, um, smugglers turned to international smuggling ring and the DEA. And, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and Nixon, you know, Nixon, Nixon, of course, pops up as he must. Of course. Whittier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what else? Uh, well, I, I, have, I have another question for you. Uh, so, like, the idea of L.A. for you, I mean, like, from the bits I've read, and I've ordered L.A. Man, but the, the bits that I've read, like, just putting this uh, composite together, right, of, like, I mean, what to you is an L.A. man? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the title actually was is, is sort of meant to be a, a play on words. Um, and it, 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 subliminally, it's meant to read as layman. Um, oh, nice. 
Yeah, you see those two. If you see it, there's these two palm trees in yeah. the ground. They were kind of meant to be a little more to the right and sort of form a, a Y, so that you would like subliminally read layman. layman. Yeah, um, which is also a you know a joke about journalism, and um, that you uh, you know you're kind of a layman. Journalists are kind of layman. They're they're as you know you know and particularly as a surf journalist, you're often kind of. Um, it helps to be able, you participate in a lot of ways, uh, um, and you're also an outsider. Um, but we kind of become instant, you know, not experts, but good enough to, um, you know, be able to translate, and you're also a linguist, uh, being able to translate for the readers, whether it's um, being able to translate tracking a wolf, which I do in one of the stories in the collection, or surfing, which uh, I do in a number of the stories in the collection, or um, you know uh, something like uh, you know you know politics uh, or um, uh, you know literature, art, whatever it is, uh, uh, you kind of have to become. Uh, versed in the subject almost immediately, but you know we're also not usually experts either. No, uh, I mean that, that's a it's a funny part to me, which I only really know surf journalism. I mean, I've done pieces, you know, on war and everything, but it's like I, I always just think that I, I wonder if how like real journalists if they if they always because half the time I feel like a hack, right? Like I feel like I'm not good enough to to become you know, for surf at least. I was never good enough to become a pro surfer, which automatically makes me hack. I'm barely good enough to write about it, um, which, you know, I, I just feel like, I feel journalists, uh, my dad was a, is a teacher, and the whole, those who can't do teach. Yeah. And I feel with journalism, those who can't do teach, those who can't teach are journalists. Like, <laughs> to, to me, it feels like... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's this group of people who legitimately aren't good enough at anything to be anything else. Well, we, and we also are there to stand in for, you know, uh, everyone else. Um, Which, and, and, and I guess maybe that's the point right there is that nobody's, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe the best journalists are the ones that are just most on, honest about just painting the picture as opposed to, yeah, like, yeah. And we'll any get other in the like, ring. you know, we'll, yeah. we'll get in the ring for you. And sometimes literally we'll get in the ring for you. God bless George Plimpton. You know, and yeah, I mean, there's, you know, times when I, I've almost gotten in literally, well, I have gotten in the ring. You yeah, know, what have you, have you, did you box or UFC? Yeah, I boxed. Fuck UFC. Oh, I did, I had to get, I had to get in the ring to UFC once. Yeah. Story. Never. I, never <laughs> I, I, I remember the Washington Post had to box this middleweight uh, contender and he was so in such, such a magnificent physical specimen that he, he looked like a Muhammad Ali to me, you know. Did you, did you get knocked out? No, I my my the the lace of my glove wasn't tied properly, and I took a swing at him, and the the lace of my glove scratched his cornea. <laughs> wow, that is an amazing story. So I won on a TKO. That is, <laughs> which just goes to show, go in and you know go in and throw your hands, and something might happen. Give her hell. That is an amazing story. Did you write it? Uh, I, yeah, a long time ago for the Washington Post. It, it's, oh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig for that. I wanna uh, I want to read. I, I TKO'd. It was, yeah, it, was it, it was this was in the early '90s when yuppie boxing was just starting to become a thing. Like the gentrification of boxing was just starting to happen. That is awesome. Yeah, so I went in for you know the average you know average white guy who, who goes to a real gym to you know start boxing and you know etc. I'm gonna, um, I need, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, pivot real quick here because I need I need to ask a question before we get cut off. Yeah. Uh, as a father of a daughter, you have a daughter, right? Yeah. How old is she? She's four. Four. Okay, I got a five-year-old daughter. Uh, do, do you yeah. ever want? <laughs> congrats to you too. Do you ever want to write parenting books? No. Never. <laughs> no. Have, have you Have you ever mommy blogged? I, I wrote a blog called um, First Time Dad at 50, or it wasn't okay. a blog. I was being, uh, it was a, a column for uh, an online magazine that that went out of business after, you know, like my 10th tenth, uh, uh, tenth installment of this column. Uh, I'm not really sure I drove them out of business. But, <laughs> you know. um, and uh, I did it because I was getting paid and I needed the money, um, but I hated doing it. Um, it felt it didn't feel natural uh, or, you know, completely honest to me. I felt like I, I was being more polite than I usually am. Um, oh, yeah. But 
it was it was also really well liked. So I'm not sure that um, you know, you know, I, I don't always make the best decisions. You know, <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> but I want to answer your question about LA. You know, you were asking to me what is an LA man or a woman. Yes. Um, you know, one of the I think the thing that that drew me here, uh, and possibly similarly to you, is that um, it wasn't. Uh, I'd, I'd lived in New York for a number of years, and um, there is there is such you know sort of social uh, uh, and artistic um, stratification there that it drove me crazy, um, and it's so parochial. You know, I found the East Coast and New York to be so parochial, and I you know I, I you know went to school with you know, the, the master, future masters of the universe and God bless them. They went on to become masters of the universe, but you know, most of them have hardly ever gone West of, uh, you know, the Hudson river. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I just found myself, uh, sort of grading at the institutionalization of New York. And I was attracted to what I gleaned probably similarly to you from received knowledge to be this West coast aesthetic, which was a little more, you know, highbrow, lowbrow, a little more, you know, street level and street wise, um, and a little more organic and not so ruled by, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, history and privilege and power and institutions, um, and, you know, um, being, um, being anointed by whomever, you know, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd run up against the, the sort of establishment and, you know, the need to be anointed and to have to play the cards right and the politics right to be anointed. And I never, uh, I found that I never was very good at that. And um, it seemed like LA would allow me to breathe and to, you know, to possibly have a career and a life without having to, to, you know, play all those games. And for the most part, it turned out to be true. I fear now that because of, you know, the economic imperatives of living in Los Angeles now that it's, that it's getting more and more difficult to live that kind of life. But God, yeah, but I mean, I will say God bless LA for that, for, for providing uh, that space for people to still come. I think, I mean, even if you can't get in economically anymore, which, which I guess defeats the whole purpose right there. So I guess don't come to LA people. It's dream is dead. <laughs> yeah. I worry about the space. It was, you know, like I think space is a good way of looking at it. It you know, it gives you the physical and the intellectual and, uh, uh, cultural space to, to, you know, to do things a little bit differently or to, you know, maybe follow your voice free from some of the, uh, overriding pressures that, you know, come from, you know, East coast establishment, but it's getting, you know, that space, uh, was here because it was affordable. But I wonder, I wonder though, how much like, you know, there's always Roland Heights or those weird towns over the hill from Whittier, right? El Monte and all that. Like how many of those places could you go to be close enough to kind of this LA basin dream thing. Uh, but you know, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if there's, if there's gold in this weird suburban LA, I mean, which I'm sure obviously gets mine, you know, from time to time, but I don't, I, I feel like there's whole stretches of, of the LA basin that, that nobody even knows about. Maybe. I mean, it, it's possible. Um, I mean, I think there, you know, even as diffuse as Los Angeles is, there's still a little bit of gravity around, you know, um, you know, the, the sort of core of Hollywood downtown sure. East side and even, you know, Venice where, the, where there's some cultural history as well and some legacy, um, you sure. know, the beat, yeah, the beats down there long before, you know, before the beats were known, um, you had this sort of Warholian, uh, uh, art scene, uh, you know, along Santa Monica, you know, in the fifties and sixties, you know, before it, 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 you know, Warhol went back to New York and started the factory. And, you know, you kind of had, you did have some, um, some, some, uh, history in that way around here that, that I think, you know, which you guys like you and I probably tuned into to some degree. I mean, and, for sure. Yeah. And, and I don't know, uh, I don't know if you. I don't know if that works where there isn't at least some legacy. Even though it was kind of a um, iconoclastic legacy in Los Angeles, there was still a legacy. You know, that's true. But I, I guess from from my mind coming in, you know, Biola's and La Mirada. I to me, to my naive Coos Bay, Oregon mind, both La Mirada, where I went to college, and 
and uh, Merino Valley, which is where Grandma lived, were L.A., right? Where, oh, yeah. And, and being here now, they couldn't, La Mirada and Merino Valley could not be further away from what L.A. is. But to my naive mind, like, I, I was still living this dream, even though I was, yeah, in the crappiest places ever or crappiest place ever. Well, I think there's something in the, um, you know, um, there's there's significant, there's, you know, we're now getting into second and third generation of um, immigrant populations sort of going to college and pursuing their dreams a little bit more in those areas, um, in the San Gabriel Valley and East LA and stuff like that. And there, I think perhaps there is the ability to, um, you know, like my dad didn't have a choice. He was, you know, he didn't have a choice. Uh, he couldn't pursue his dreams because uh, he was a, you know, um, second generation immigrant who from a poor family who had to just scrap to survive. And that's a similar, that's a very familiar immigrant story. Now we have immigrant populations in the San Gabriel Valley, East Los Angeles, South Los Angeles, and all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, are now on to maybe being more established and can actually um, experiment a little bit more. So maybe that's where the energy will come from, you know. Um, the, 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 the imperatives to just do something safe may not be there as much as they were, you know, hopefully. And there's probably a lot of uh, creative energy in those communities, which I think might be what you're saying. I love exactly. And I love in the day and age of Trump that if L.A. can provide this amazing immigrant act would be would be so beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's where the energy and, and the optimism and, and hope is coming from. I see it all the time at Whittier where, you know, I, I teach at a school that's um, a Hispanic serving institution. It's 30 percent Latino. It's got a really strong uh, um, Pacific Rim uh, population of students, you know, uh, um, and uh, um, it's very diverse. There's, uh, you know, a significant number of African-American students there. And it all seems, you know, it all seems like what's actually real. This other stuff that Trump is, you know, this Trumpism actually seems phony and, yeah. um, and, and, and retrograde and not the future. I hope that is the case. I mean, you know, I'm all for L.A. spreading across the country. <laughs> oh, man. Amen. <laughs> uh, that would be uh, that would be uh, that would be a hopeful future, I think. Amen. I completely agree. So what's, uh, tell, let's, I mean, we're probably going way over, but just tell me, you know, a little bit about your process and, um, and putting these two books together. I mean, I'm interested in Welcome to Paradise as, as well as, uh, uh, Surfing and Cocaine, um, a love story. I mean, or is it cocaine and surfing? I'm, I think, I think cocaine gets, gets lead billing as it should. Yeah. Um, are you concerned about, you know, uh, you know, sort of earning a little bit of a pariah uh, uh, status in, in that community um, because you're sort of taking on these, uh, you know, long whispered and, and known, um, you know, uh, parts of the culture and, and going at it so, um, you know, so directly. No, I mean, I keep, I, I thought that Welcome to Paradise was going get, to get me kicked out of surfing, but I keep trying to get kicked out. Yeah. Uh, and I thought Welcome to Paradise was going to kick me out. And, it was exactly the, you know, as hard, whatever the line, movie line is, I keep trying to leave and they keep pulling me back in kind of thing where I just couldn't leave. And so I thought, okay, this fucker, I'll write this one and then I'll, I'll get kicked out. So, uh, I, I want to get pushed out of surf. God bless it. I, I want to go do other stuff. Um, yeah. and yeah, so that's why I keep writing these things, but, but like I guess as I write them and as they come out, uh, like I am deeply and desperately and passionately in love with surfing, and yeah. always have been. And I can't. I guess when I write, I can't. Or yeah, maybe maybe that comes through. And so at the end, surfers in the surf industry are, are not that mad because they're they think, oh yeah, you're you may be a crazy kook, but uh, we feel what you're talking about in here. Yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny. I keep saying the same thing and, you know, now I, I think, uh, next issue of Surfer's Journal features a huge profile I did of Danny Kwok. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to read it. We'll be in the same Surfer's Journal. Oh, nice. I was wondering yeah. if paths would cross there. That's, that's what happens. We don't get out of it. We just, we just like sort of 
you know, graduate to the Surfer's Journal. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm, I mean, and the Surfer's Journal, speaking of, is an absolute miracle, I think, of print. I mean, I love that magazine. The fact that it makes money on, I mean, it's just a complete anomaly, I think, in the day and age of, you know, contracting whatever. Like, the fact that they make money on their print magazine is amazing. I know. We should we should do a shout-out to uh, Scott Hewlett and, uh, you know, the Pesmans. Scott Hewlett is the smartest man and maybe the second most beautiful man now that I've seen you uh, that I know. I know, right? I can't. He's just like he looms large. I've, I've never met him. We've known each other for years and we've never met. I can't. Oh, wait. you sh- you need to come down. I'll, I'll join you in the Surface Journal office around Scott Hewlett's coffee table. It is well, it. well worth the drive. He's been good to me. He's fantastic. Um, well, yeah. So, you know, there, there may be no getting out like the mafia, but, you know, maybe we can sort of find a, uh, uh, you know, a comfortable way to grow with it. And see, and that, and, and maybe that's it. Maybe that's the lesson I need to learn is just to be, just to be okay to be here. But, and, and maybe we can do it without ever having to, uh, read, um, barbarians. Oh, have you read it? <laughs> no, I've read, I, I, I love what I can't even, I'm spacing on his name. I've read, you know, Finnegan. Old yeah, William Finnegan, who was actually featured in Slake once in uh, that that journal, uh, art, uh, literary journal that I did um, a while back. But lovely guy and a great writer. Um, but I, I I fear that I've you know having read at least thirty thousand of his words on surfing in the pages of the New Yorker and elsewhere, I'm I'm wondering if there's anything left there for me in the tank. I, I, what I couldn't believe. I mean, I thought it was a I thought it was a beautiful read and what. Like what made me the happiest ever is that a surf book won a Pulitzer Prize. Right. I mean, I, I didn't think I would live to see the day. Right. Yeah. It can be done. It can be done. He did it. It'll be, it can be done and he did it. So it'll never be done again, but yeah. at least I got to witness it. Yeah. God bless him. Well, uh, you know, between him and, uh, um, uh, who's, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on his name, Pomona queen, uh, Oh, oh, damn it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Not this Ken, is what happens Ken Nunn? Foreign, yeah, Ken Nunn. Between yeah. him and Ken Nunn, maybe uh, lies the answer. I mean, somewhere. Somewhere in there. Yeah, there's a lot of room. Yep. <laughs> and Jamie Brissick. Oh, God bless Jamie Brissick, too. I don't know why. Yeah, for those who are listening, uh, his Wesley Wendina, uh, Jamie Brissick wrote a, a book about a... a um, well, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it about an Australian surf champion man who wanted to transition into become a woman. Uh, and that story is epic. Have you read that one? Yeah. Jamie's, I mean, talking now, now we're in widening our circle of beautiful men. We have to put Jamie Brissick. Jamie, in. Jamie, maybe, maybe, yeah. Standing shoulder to shoulder with Scott Hewlett. Yeah. <laughs> and he's actually beautiful too. I know he is. And dating stinking Kim Gordon from, or yeah. I think he is still yeah, from, exactly. I don't, I mean, you're dating the Sonic Youth. So well, there's one, something else I wanted to talk to you about. Now I can't remember what it was. Oh, and, uh, Andy uh, Irons and Kelly Slater. Yes. I'm going to refer you self-servingly to, um, I think it was the first or second issue of Slake. Uh, and my, my friend, Justin Warfield, I, I don't know if you know Justin, but you should. Um, he was the, uh, one of the, the, the leader of uh, She Wants Revenge. Um, oh, yeah. But also an amazing thinker and writer. Um, he, wrote this, uh, he wrote this piece for Slake uh, uh, when Andy died called, uh, it was just called Andy and Kelly. And it okay. was this, this thought, think piece on the nature of their um, friend, frenemyship. Oh, this is so good. Okay, I'm going to find it right now. Yeah, and it's really, to me, it encapsulates... The entire it, it was such a beautiful piece, and it sort of encapsulates the entire thing, and really gets into this sort of yin and yang that is Kelly and Andy, and and uh, you know, kind of uh, you know how much they they actually meant and needed each other, meant for each other, and needed each other. Um, really interesting piece. I wondered if you uh, what you think about that. I mean, I think that I think that Andy, the Andy Kelly. Uh, um, you know, they're, th- those guys going head to head for those years is one of, I think, could be argued it was one of the high moments in all of sporting history uh, to have this rivalry that was both so raw and so genuine. I mean, to me, that's what 
you know, I don't know, I guess, what, you know, while Rafael Nadal thinks about Roger Federer or, uh, you know, I can even, or LeBron James thinks about Kevin Durant. Uh, but I know, I mean, I lived through that Kelly and Andy one and, and Andy hated Kelly. Uh, and to have that hatred, um, genuine, honest hatred to me and two guys, two surfers who were so different, uh, yeah. but re- representing what they like, I mean, they were both just iconically what they were and having these things clash was, it was a moment in time that, that I think is still not, not fully realized in surf, right? Like just how beautiful that, that moment was. Yeah. And, and it's not like Andy hated Kelly. He hated what Kelly he represented, but not what Kelly represented to himself, but the way people perceived Kelly Totally. I, I, Just the, the and idea. Actually, Andy hated the actually idea. Had Kelly. This, like a lot of, I think he, I feel like he actually had this sort of grudging respect and secret like of Kelly himself. Oh, completely, completely. I mean, I think Andy, Andy respected Kelly to like nobody's business, but I think Andy hated the idea of Kelly Slater. Yeah, which I think Kelly Slater hated also. Sure, totally. I mean, that's uh, the, yeah. I mean, they and they did that movie, The Fly and the Champagne, that was that was such a brief little scratch of the surface of what that rivalry was. But I think that rivalry uh, could be like an absolutely epic, you know, eight hundred page huge book. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I totally it's, agree. It's kind of like it's almost like the surfing version of Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it and it it like didn't get to play out as long as it should have played out, but. Uh, maybe maybe in playing out too long, it would have lost its lost its yeah. magic. Yeah, it might have. Who do you who did you like better as a surfer? Oh, um, of, of that rivalry, those years, I liked Andy. I think that yeah. the derelicts fell in behind Andy pretty pretty quickly. But of those years, I was really who was I a huge fan of in those years? I, I, I was riding already surf and okay. uh, at at that point, uh, I mean during the, their rivalry years, and and I'd already. I'd seen enough surf fan journalists come. I was like, what the hell are you people doing? How can you be fans of anybody? Like this, these are the people we're supposed to be, you know, not tearing apart, but we can't yeah. be fans <laughs> here, buddies. And so, yeah, I was. Sports and all, right? Exactly. So I was fairly on the sidelines of, of being a surf fan at that point and just like, oh, all right, what I feel. But just purely in terms of their surfing style. And in, in, purely in terms of surfing style. Andy, how do you, I mean, I don't know how anybody, Kelly's, Kelly's the best surfer to ever live, hands down, on the face of the earth. But the way Andy surfed, uh, w- w- I don't think, w- I've never seen it. I've never seen it since Andy. And, and uh, you know, it seems super romantic. But I, I can't imagine another surfer coming along who had the particular skill set that Andy had and the way he married it to just the overall picture. Yeah, surfing, his ability to sort of harness and surf angry, but uh, when he was on it, be in control as well. Exactly. Yeah. Phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal yeah. surfer. Exciting. Chaz, always fantastic. talking to you. This is Joe Donnelly, author of LA Man, Profiles from a Big City in a Small World, signing off graciously and gratefully. And Joe, I cannot wait to meet you and get a drink. Uh, with Scott Hewlett and Jamie Brissick and whoever else we want to invite. And this is Chaz Smith, author of Cocaine Plus Surfing.